Welcome to Fiscal One-on-One. This Iowa Legislative Services Agency audio program consists of interviews conducted by the Fiscal Services Division staff. Each brief conversational interview features an expert answering questions concerning a fiscal topic of interest within an Iowa State agency. The following interview was conducted on November 7, 2012. Beth Lenstra, Senior Fiscal Analyst with the Fiscal Services Division of the Legislative Services Agency, interviewed Jerry Burt, Deputy Director of the Department of Corrections, also known as the DOC, regarding the 1981 riot at the Iowa State Penitentiary at Fort Madison and the changes that were made to operating the prison system after the riot, as well as the DOC's mission in managing the institutions. My name is Beth Lenstra, Senior Legislative Analyst for the Fiscal Services Division of the Legislative Services Agency. Today I am talking with Jerry Bird, the Deputy Director of the Department of Corrections, also known as the DOC. Hello Jerry and thank you for coming in today. Good morning, Beth. When did you start working in corrections? I started working in corrections in July of 1975 after a very brief career as a junior high school social studies teacher. I started as a correctional officer at the Iowa State Penitentiary in Fort Madison. So you actually started at the bottom and worked your way up to almost the top. Where were you at during the 1981 riot at the Iowa State Penitentiary? As I mentioned, I started as an officer down there, and then I later served as a counselor. In September of 1981, I was the training officer for the institution in charge of, of staff training. At the time, I had a group of new employees that were going through their orientation at the institution and we were involved in in training. Late that morning, I sent a group of those trainees over to the dining hall for lunch. One of them needed to stay behind to make a phone call, and that had to be processed through our control center, so I placed the call for him, and when I was placing the call, I heard a lot of background noise and asked what was going on, and the uh, control center operator told me that we had a problem in the kitchen. So, I left the one new employee down in the training center, and I went over to the dining hall to see what I could find out. When I arrived there, staff, inmates, lots and lots of folks were just pouring out of the place at the time. I gathered up the new trainees outside the door there, got all of them together, um, when a guy named McKinney Sheffy, who we later learned was the leader of one of the group of hostage takers, came to the door with a zip gun and said that he wanted to talk to me. I sent the group of employees back to the inside administration building, the 51 building, where the ship captain's office was, where my office was, where the other trainee was, and told them to stay put. And I went in to talk to Mr. Sheffy. Also saw the four staff hostages that had been taken there. It included our security director of the institution, both of the assistant security directors, and our yard lieutenant. They then allowed me to leave. I went back and I talked to the ship supervisor for a little bit, explained what I had seen went back over into the dining hall to talk to them again, left, and we set up telephone negotiations from that point on. I did not realize they had taken hostages. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they did. There were actually two sets of hostages that were taken. The decision that I made to send that group of employees back over to 51 buildings was one that I came to rethink and regret and all that because those staff members that I sent back to that building were shortly thereafter taken hostage by a second group of hostage takers. So we actually had two separate groups of hostage takers, two separate groups of hostages through that day that we were negotiating for. 
So they were actually very well planned and very well thought out from the inmates' perspective. But the first hostage taking was reasonably well thought out. The second group of hostages that were taken, that was simply taking advantage of an opportunity that that group saw. They were not coordinated in any way. They were two separate okay. groups. In fact, there was some conflict between those groups during the day. So how did that all end? There was people killed, weren't there? There was one an offender, one inmate that was killed, a guy by the name Gary Tyson. We negotiated throughout the entire day. It went from late morning into, I'm not sure exactly what time the thing got over, with 10.30, 11 o'clock at night, something like that. Most of the hostages, all the hostages were released by 9 or 9.30, and there were still some other things that were going on in the institution. Initially, we had relative control of the institution. The situation in the dining hall obviously was out of control. There were a group of hostage takers there. They did have weapons, a combination of zip guns, which were loaded, as well as knives and those kinds of things. But the rest of the institution was fairly well controlled, and when the inmates were directed to go back to their cells, the vast majority of them did, as they were told. Now that changed later in the day. Later in the day, it became very chaotic, and the ones who had returned to their cells, because not everyone did, they were eventually were let out. So we had staff that were essentially trapped in the institution in various places, in the hospital and those kinds of things. We had some inmates that had some severe medical issues that needed to be attended to. So the first negotiations that we did were actually not for the release of hostages, but to attain safe passage for people to move from the hospital and other areas to, to get them out in, into safe areas. And for also the inmates that, that had some medical issues that needed to be attended to. And it was after that that we started to try to work to secure the release of the others, which was complicated, obviously, by the fact that there were two separate groups that we were dealing with. And then later on in the afternoon, the disturbance, the riot itself started developing that complicated matters even more. How long did it take to gain control of the institution? We gained control of the institution, a combination of staff as well as state patrol. Somewhere around 12 hours into the situation, something like that, all the hostages had been released by that time. And it was as we were regaining control, making sure that people were sent back to their cells, the fire department in to put out the fires that had been set in the inside administration building and all those kinds of things. Tyson's body was found. He was actually killed by a group of inmates who broke into our segregation cell house, cell house 20. They broke into that cell house, released him, and he was murdered. It was a gang-related murder. Or at least we believe it was a gang-related murder. So I assume that was probably the scariest day in your long corrections career? Yeah, for sure. I've often said that at the time that I was actually in with the hostages and held at gunpoint, that that wasn't the scary time so much. The scary time was when I was attempting to gain their release and really quite scared <laughs> that I might do something that would compromise their safety. I was essentially untrained in hostage negotiation. We hadn't done any training of that type at that point. I'd actually been scheduled to go to a hostage negotiation training seminar that was later canceled due to budgetary issues <laughs> that was earlier that spring. But the way that I got involved in the negotiations was I happened to be at that particular place at that particular time. I didn't know Sheffy well, but I did know him. He seemed to know me and chose me, said he wanted to talk to me. That's how I got involved. Could you describe the differences before and after the riot 
and inmate behaviors, the privileges, and the operating conditions in the prison system. I'm assuming it would have an impact across the entire prison system, not sure. just at Fort Madison. Yeah, in particular at Fort Madison, but, but to a lesser extent elsewhere. It was an extraordinarily difficult time. We were dealing with lots and lots and lots of varying factors. We had quite a number of Vietnam veterans in our population, folks who had developed drug dependencies and, and those kinds of things. So a lot of instability, certainly in the country through the 70s, and that carried on into institutions. The courts were becoming more and more involved in institutional operations at that time, not as much in Iowa as in other places, but the rules were changing a lot, and certainly most of those changes were for the good. I don't think there's any question about that, but they did lend a sense of instability to them. The staff was generally unprepared, undertrained. We were, in, at least in my opinion, grossly understaffed. Gangs within the institution were gaining more and more of a foothold, so there was a lot of instability at that time. And the riot itself essentially put a halt to that. It was kind of a demarcation line, and a lot of things changed after that. One thing that I've often told people, because it was such a prevalent thing, is that during the late 70s, in particular, in addition to just general instability, there was a lot of violence in the institutions. And it became so commonplace that a very prevailing attitude, which was expressed by lots of folks, was simply to say, it's a maximum security institution. What do you expect? This stuff happens here. I think perhaps the most significant change that occurred as a result of the disturbance was, I think, a determination on the part of blind staff as well as administrative staff that we can't operate that way, that everything that happens within our institutions is our responsibility. Not everything's our fault, certainly, but everything that happens is our responsibility. As a result of the problems that we had, lots of changes were made. Warden Skur, who I think was a fine man and worked very hard to make that a good institution, was moved. And Crispus Nix, who had been the commandant of the disciplinary barracks at Fort Leavenworth, came into the institution with, to some extent, maybe a new attitude, but equally or probably more important, additional resources. The population of the institution was reduced by I don't really remember for sure, but 250 or 300 inmates, mm -hmm. the population was reduced. And we hired an additional 100 staff. We opened up our training center within six months after the rise, so we did a better job preparing staff to go into those kinds of things. So I looked at the rise itself as a, like I said, kind of a line of demarcation between a different approach that, quite frankly, was largely a result of increased resources that allowed us to do things that we couldn't do before. And it also helped in terms of a change of attitude, to not look at things in terms of what we couldn't do, but to look at things in terms of what we could do and in terms of what we could influence. The good things that came out of the bad situation of a riot within the prison system would be you had more staff training and development, more professionalism and more pride in your work and more buy-in from the staff, that the responsibility is theirs to control the institutions. Exactly. More pride and, and I think a, a more focused sense of purpose. And my career here started in the late 80s, and when I started staffing corrections in 1987 for the General Assembly, we were dealing with 
the court cases coming down at the federal level with Fort Madison. It was a great learning experience for me as a young budget analyst to realize that the federal court system can mandate how many people you can have within the maximum security unit and then also the staffing demands that the federal judges put on the state of Iowa, especially for that institution. And they also mandated the training academy so that staff were adequately trained. But that was an eye-opener for me, that the federal system could come in and tell you as a state that you must do and you shall do. And the AG's office was given the responsibility to make sure that those federal court orders were implemented. So I guess I'm just throwing that out there as background that yeah. the further impact of the riot spread not just outside the prison system, but clearly spilled over to the policymakers in the state that the choices they had are limited by federal parameters. And, and from our standpoint, we'd certainly prefer to be more proactive rather than simply react <laughs> to litigation. So as you progressed up the ranks and you became a warden and a deputy director, did the riot make you more attuned to security, the inmate moods, the overall aura or ambiance of the prisons and the yard and the cell blocks? I don't think so. Those were things that I think I was fairly well attuned to. It did, though, kind of related to what I was talking about earlier. It did absolutely kind of solidify a commitment that Everything that happens is our responsibility. Everything. Violent acts that occur, sexual misconduct that occurs, everything that happens within that institution is our responsibility. And there's a lot of good that goes on in our institutions too, and we obviously we can't forget that. I think that probably more than anything was what I came out of that with, just sort of a greater sense of commitment and purpose to making sure that we're doing everything that we can to control, to influence, and to help people change. During your career, what was the toughest job you held in the department? Probably my current job. Deputy director? Deputy director. Why? When you reach a certain level, and whether it was as a treatment director or a deputy warden or as a warden or in my current position, yet most of the stuff that comes across your desk or your desktop is negative. It's complaints, it's grievances, it's budgetary issues, it's staff concerns, it's all kinds of things, legitimate and not legitimate, but the vast majority of those kinds of things are negative. And I can certainly think of many, many, many times, hundreds of times as a warden, as a deputy warden, as a treatment director, when I would just get the feeling of, my gosh, what, what kind of operation do we have here as I'm dealing with all these grievances and issues and things like that. And the only thing that I had to do, and I tried to do it anyway, but the only thing that I had to do when I started feeling that way was to get up and walk around. That's all I had to do. I had to go out, I had to talk to staff, I had to talk to, to the offenders that were out there, see people on their jobs doing good work, offenders doing good work, staff doing good work, seeing lots and lots of positive interchanges between staff and offenders and between offenders and offenders and, and people cooperating to make things work. And then I could go back to my desk with kind of a different perspective on things. The most difficult thing, honestly, about my job now is that I'm more detached from the day-to-day -day operations, from the real work, from the people that we're working with and serving, from our staff. The folks I work with in central office are great. The director is great to work with. Cheryl Dom, who works very closely with me, is terrific. 
but it's not where the day-to-day -day work is being done. So that's something that I miss a great deal, and that makes the job more difficult. So I really have to focus on knowing what's really going on in those institutions. But it's a more detached sort of thing. It's more of an intellectual exercise. But when I do get out, and I do try to get out with some frequency, I see the same things that really please me when I get out there. Staff working hard, trying to do their job, and by and large, offenders in the institutions doing what they're supposed to do and trying to make the changes that they need to make. What has been your greatest accomplishment in your long career? I can tell you absolutely what my favorite memory is, so if you don't mind my sure. changing that, I'll stick that in. It happened when I was warden at Anamosa about five years ago or so. I was in my office, I got up, I went out into the lobby to get a Diet Pepsi. And it, it happened to be right at shift change. And I don't know if you've ever been, mm -hmm. it, particularly at Anamosa, at shift change. It's a wild and crazy thing. There were visitors waiting to be processed in, and visitors that were coming out, and there were staff that were coming and going, and it looks to be just a really chaotic kind of thing. I don't know what I was thinking about other than going out to get my Diet Pepsi. And as I walked through, I saw this gentleman standing there, early 50s, I suppose, and he was holding a little girl, maybe three, four years old, something like that. And as the staff were coming through, in and out, almost all of them, correction officers in uniform, he pointed to the staff and he said, look, honey, all those people, they're your daddy's teachers. That's great. And I stopped and we made eye contact and I said, I sure hope so. And his wife stood up and she said, oh, it's true. He has changed so much. And we had a nice little conversation before I went back to my office. That's absolutely my favorite memory because it puts together what our purpose is. It demonstrates that despite all the problems that we have, and we've got a multitude of problems, that there's a lot of good work going on out there. You know the department's mm -hmm. mission statement and all those kinds of things. And one thing that I often point out is that the department's flag says it, I think, even better, more succinctly when it talks about protecting people and changing lives, because that really is what we're here for. And keeping people focused on that is quite often a challenge, because it's so easy for me, as well as for blind staff, for folks that are out there doing probation officers, doing home visits, or correctional officers doing searches, or counselors in a counseling session. It's so easy to get wrapped up in the day-to-day -day stuff that you lose sight of the big picture. That is here to provide opportunities to make positive changes. Mm -hmm. To protect people and to change lives. Yep. That's really what we do. That that individual path search that a correctional officer does with somebody, he doesn't do it because the policy says so, at least he shouldn't be doing it because the policy says so. He's doing it because it serves a very real purpose to keep institutions safer. And each interchange that a correctional officer has with an offender affects that offender in either a negative way or a positive way. And all of that contributes to the bigger picture of protecting people and changing lives. It really does. Do you have anything else you would like to add at this point? I can say it has been a real privilege to serve. It really has been. Well, I want to thank you for coming in today and thank you for your years of public service. Thank you.